Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show with Janice Lindstrom. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of this show, and I'm a board-certified music therapist with 20 years of experience working in a variety of settings and with a variety of populations. Today is Friday, January 23rd, 2015, and uh, if I sound a little winded and distracted today, it's because my kid is not cooperating and is not napping during the show like he's supposed to. I do have... (laughs) A guest today, Megan Masco, is joining me today, and uh, we are talking about music therapy perspectives. This is Journal Club, and it's uh, volume 32, number two, the last one published in 2014. Megan, thanks for being on the show again today. Hi, Janice. Hi, Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) He keeps stealing my journal, so maybe he reads more of it than I think he does should participate in these anyway. It could be. It could be. <laughs> so we always run out of time on these, so let's get right down to business. Um, this okay. artif- or this journal edition had a special series on spirituality, and uh, there was a nice editorial by Tony Meadows at the beginning. That's right, Kyle. And uh, he introduced that and talked about associate editors in the editorial. And the first article on uh, spirituality, or in the spirituality section, was called Theoretical Considerations of Spirit and Spirituality in Music Therapy by Noah Potman and Julian Argue. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Do you want me to jump on in and take this one? Please. Please. Okay. So, uh, I I was really excited to see these first two articles actually in the Music Therapy Perspectives because um, spirituality and spiritual care and end of life is one of the things that I research and it's what I wrote my dissertation on. So I was really glad to see these. Um, And it's important, I think, for music therapists to really start talking about spirituality and spiritual care and how music therapy and why music therapy should be used to address that. Because we're we're actually kind, even though a lot of us say, oh yeah, I work on spiritual care, in terms of research, we are very far behind other disciplines like medicine, honestly, even physical therapy, occupational therapy, social work, nursing. They have whole journals that are associated with spiritual care. So we're we're behind. Um, but so I was really glad to see a couple of studies um, come out. And this was not an experiment. This was a discussion of different theories and different ways that music therapy and music might be used to address different aspects of spirituality. Um, it is difficult to come up with an operational definition of spirituality, but actually the hospice and palliative care medicine has discipline has done a really, really good job of addressing this issue. And they actually have come up with an operational definition of spirituality that they use now in terms of doing research on this topic. So um, one of the points that that Noah and Jillian make, it's actually on the second page of the study of the article, is they say a music therapist who is aware of his or her client's non-affiliation with established religion but unaware of the client's spiritual domain could miss an opportunity to address the client's very real spiritual strengths and needs. And that, I think, is actually the most important takeaway from this article is that little sentence because we have a lot of people, and especially as the baby boomers age, 
who do not consider themselves to be religious but do consider themselves to be quite spiritual. And so we have to remember that, that those two things actually are distinct. And when we are working with clients, when we're working with patients, we do have to make sure that we understand that those two things are distinct. Um, we also need to remember Noah, off, Noah and Jillian offer lots of ways that music is related to spirituality. Um, and those, I think, are important for people to read. But we do need to remember that you know music is a multidimensional um, experience, right? It's a it's a vibrotactile experience. It's a physical experience. It's an emotional experience. A psychological experience. We can relate music to nature. We can have intrapersonal experiences. We can have interpersonal experiences with it. We can use music as prayer. Um, and for a lot of major religions, music is a really important component, almost all of them. Music is an important component of the religious experience and practicing of religion. So we just we have to keep all those things in, in mind. Um, so I, I actually, I, I think this article was a great starting point for us to begin talking about spirituality and spiritual care and music therapy, because we really need to. Um, and that actually takes us to the next study by... Well, I wanted to Mark say, I like that you, talked oh, about yeah. a, that you talk about a takeaway, because that's how I read these journal articles, is I want to have something that I take away and can use in my practice. And um, I actually had a difficult time reading this article, because uh, it, it ha used a lot of jargon. And I have difficulty reading jargon. I feel like um, researchers and clinicians need to do a better job of not using gar jargon so that uh, people can understand what they're trying to say. However, I also will admit that I do read these journal articles while I'm caring for my son, just like I'm doing this show while trying to take care of a little boy. And uh, that might impede my ability to comprehend really well. But <laughs> my takeaway from this, too, was that spirituality is important to consider when working with clients, and um, I mean, I I already do that, and and uh, that's one of, part of the wellness model that um, I've integrated into a lot of my work too. But uh, yeah, I and like, it's, and it's I important like for us to remember that religion and spirituality are not necessarily mutually inclusive. So right. we do have to remember that even if somebody says I'm not religious, well, they're probably still there's still some spiritual needs that need to be met. Yes. Yeah. All right. So then you were going to I, talk honestly, about music I think, therapy. Oh, go ahead. I am an academic, and I have to tell you that I read my journals while I'm cooking dinner and do, folding laundry, and it's not just you. <laughs> and, okay, you know, good. Sitting in between basketball games when my son's not playing. So, yeah, I, right. I'm i with you. Um, so that you were um, going to talk about music therapy and spirituality, How Can I Keep From Singing by Marcy Kidwell. Or, I'm sorry, Mary Kidwell. Is it Marcy or article. Mary? Mary. 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 Right. Sorry. Yeah, and I, this is, uh, we have, in terms of research on spirituality in the music therapy literature, um, we this, this article is a really good example of what, of the research that we have, a lot of it is like this, where it is um, a series of case examples or a series of case stories, and we can learn a lot from them. Um, the thing about qualitative versus quantitative research is that qualitative research can offer us a lot of depth of understanding on a really on a limited scale. You know, we're looking at one specific thing, whereas 
quantitative research can give us kind of a, a sh not shallower, but not as, well, I'm still going to wind up with shallow, but with a, you know, with a view that can give us perhaps some generalizability to larger groups. So I, I always enjoy reading a, a nice qualitative um, piece. What did you think of this article? I liked this one. Um, I liked, so what I got out, I liked the beautiful stories that she wrote that can illustrate what some music therapy sessions look like. And um, I liked how bold she was in sharing some of her thoughts that seemed so personal um, mm -hmm. about the work that she was doing. That was really nice and would make really nice examples for students to take a look at who haven't quite done, quote, real music therapy yet, you know. And uh, yeah. I thought that her article really emphasized the importance of musicianship, a large repertoire, uh, the scope mm -hmm. of practice and, and our ethics, and the importance of self-care. Those were my takeaways from this article. Oh, yeah, and this is one actually I I will be using in future semesters with students to give them a give them an understanding of, you know, this is what music therapy can look like, you know, depending on where you are practicing. Um right. I really like this article. I really identified with it. But again, this is this is a big portion of my clinical practice. So I have I've, it resonated with me, if you will. Right. And I think that your point that music therapy doesn't research spirituality enough is uh, evident in the fact that child kind of sing along with me. Um, is evident in the fact that there are only two articles in this special focus, whereas the previous journal ed um, editions that had a special focus had many more articles than just two. Um, but the next yeah. article is sorry, I'm trying to control some damage here. Um, is music oh. therapy at 2.0, Preventing User Error in Technology. And I thought that this was a really well-written article by Debbie Bates and uh, was important for all music therapists to read just to keep your um, attention on effects. Yes. Also, as a little side note and a hint, if you need the ethics credit, uh, this article would happen to work for one of the three. And and I have to say, I, this is another one of those articles I am going to make my students read. <laughs> We're actually, our practicum seminar focus this semester is on ethics. And one of the things that we are talking about is, you know, technology and ethics, because technology can pose a really big problem in terms of ethics if you don't do it the right way. I was really glad especially to see... Um, the, the sort of the sections on e-professionalism and on social media. Right. Because I feel like it is so easy to accidentally violate confidentiality or privacy um, or even just generally coming off as a professional on social media. It's so easy to do. Yes. Um, and, and I, I think really, kind of I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying. I think we kind of forget that these presences that we have, even if we we consider them to be a personal outlet, they're not personal. They're public, and they're yeah. associated with our personal brand, which is who we are and how we present ourselves as music therapists. 
Yeah, I I was really glad to see um, Debbie address. There's a, on page 137. She says one concern is the potential lack of professionalism that may be displayed in online interactions. Some of which have been addressed in the previous section, which she has. But I have to tell you, I have seen some really unprofessional behavior in online music therapy groups. And I'm yeah. I'm glad to see somebody say, you know what, this is a part of your professional practice, and you need to be aware of that. Even if you don't agree with what somebody is saying, I see this on the listserv too, even if you don't necessarily agree with somebody and what they're saying, if you don't agree with their theoretical orientation or you don't agree with their specific choice of a, you know, an intervention, well, that's fine and dandy, and there's a professional way to handle that. So... And it and it right. is an eth- it is a part of our ethical responsibility to behave in a professional well, I manner. Say, I think the the posts of help me plan my sessions along those lines are a reflection of this too. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. own work. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So the next article was by, written by Gabby Ritter Ken. I can't even say her last name, Gabby, and I'm not going to butcher it. So sorry. Um, but it's called Music Therapy and the IEP Process. And I thought this was an excellent explanation of the IEP process with a great examples of the documents in the appendices. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Gabby. Uh, yes, I was really thrilled to read this. And um, we don't have any any um, practicum for the students that I work with currently specifically designed for um, special education, but I know a lot of our students are interested in it, and so sometimes during their elective ones, they can play those so or or plan to to uh, use a school district one. So I'm hoping that they read this article too. I don't get to choose really well, curriculum, yet, so I don't get. And to I make think them it's really important that. also for music education majors to read this, not just the therapy yeah. majors, but also the music education majors who. You know, I know in Texas you would say, bless your heart. Up here we would say, God bless them. Um, you know, the 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 music education majors who are going to have students in their classes who have special needs and, and, are, and may be called, you know, to come be a part of the IEP process. But really there is not a lot of training for those students in their undergraduate, as compared to a music therapy major. There's not a lot of training for their music ed students. So I actually think this article could be a great resource for my music ed students, too. Yes. And I've actually been asked to give a presentation to a music ed class on the ARD and IEP process, uh, or the the ARD is the Texas version of the IEP meeting. But um, Mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, so I have uh, passed this article on to the professor of that class, too, um, because the examples are just really, really good. Yeah, and you want to talk about an article that is so applicable to clinical practice. Gabby nailed it. Yeah. Yes, she did. She nailed it. Um, I don't even really work in schools right now, but I was excited to read that article because I used to work in schools. Well, as, um, as a parent next, who's gone through the IEP process, oh, I was like, yeah, oh, no, this is real. Yeah, she's really got this. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was so clear and so good. Um, yeah. and, it, and it was, it was pretty easy. were very good. Yeah. All right. So the next article was written by Christine Gallagher 
Laura Mullen and Jillian Tolman, and it's called A Year in Review, Summarizing Published Literature in Music Therapy in 2012. And um, I was I was excited to see the title of that when I read the table of contents because I was hoping it would actually be a summary of the research, um, but it, it's not. It's a list of titles and where you can find them. So I feel like, and they're categorized. So I think that would be useful if you were looking for something specific um, mm -hmm. to read about a specific topic that would help you narrow your search down, at least for the articles in 2012. And then that makes me think that there's other articles for other years that are similar um, that could be helpful. But this particular one didn't seem to apply directly to my current work, and it seemed to be of more use for people doing research. So I didn't find this one as useful, but I think it's, I mean, I, I like that people do this. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I I have to say too. I think this would be something that you know we 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 so stress evidence based practice, and here's the here's the kick to that though. We stress evidence based practice. We want people to go and do their research before they engage in clinical practice. The problem is, is once you leave school, you typically lose your access to right. the databases that get you to all of those articles. So now. But in a public library, right, if you if you can do some searching, but public libraries may or may not have access to different databases that a music therapist would actually need to use. But something like this, um, you know, where you have a listing and it says this is where you could go find it, you know, then you you might be able to get those through interlibrary loan, which would be extremely helpful, you know, for a clinician who is not associated with, an edu you know, an institute of higher learning. So, like, I mean, I can just, hop on my library website and find everything that I want. But if I was a clinician and didn't have that access, something like this might be really helpful, especially if I, you know, was being asked to put together a presentation or justify to an insurance company why I was why my services were billable. So Right. And then, so it's nice that it's all categorized by um type of article. So like they have developmental disability and parents and trauma and well adults and substance abuse and all those different categories. And I do think that for the music therapist that doesn't have a university that they can access, um, articles like these can help you at least identify the what you're looking for. And so then if you reach out to the larger music therapy community and say, hey, I'm trying to access this and can't do it, can anybody help? It's a lot easier to do something specific, like find a specific article, than it is to answer a broad question like, how do I work in dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. I need this article. <laughs> Can anybody yeah. help me find it? Those, those right. are the questions so, that, I'm more, that I'm more likely to go, oh, yeah, I have a PDF of that. Here you go. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I, so the, the, next, the next article... Um, was uh, something that I have actually used like 10 times this week already. It's by Andrea know, right? <laughs> Kimberly Van Wielden, and Joshua Bula, and uh, it's called Music Therapist Perception of Top and Popular Songs by Decades, 1600, or, sorry, 1900s to 1960s for three subpopulations of older adults. And I read the abstract and, and wasn't really interested in how they collected their data, so I kind of skipped past the article part and then found these tables that had lists of songs from each decade. And they're all songs that either I used 
when I worked with this population exclusively, or people had asked me and said, hey, do you know this song? And so it was on my list of songs to learn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what. My students will be learning. If they don't know them already, they will be learning all of the songs that were (laughs) that are listed here. So I I found the most interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, the university that I work for, they're doing their gerontological practicum this semester. And uh, so the, this is where all of their songs are coming from. <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of my students. Yeah, a lot of my students this semester are with older adults. So they will definitely – this is a useful article. The thing that I found the most interesting was that participants knew more songs, you know, from the 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 knots, as they're known, and the tens than any other decade. Um which is funny because looking at those songs, a lot of those songs are so old now that we yes. sort of consider them folk songs. So I think that yeah. played into it too. You know, I, they, they, in the discussion later on, they you know they give some good explanations as to why some of these songs might be known more than other songs. Um, but I do. I think I think those songs from the 1900s and the 1910s are just so. They're just a part of the American sort of vernacular like we these are songs i was a music education i was a music educator for a while and these are songs that are incorporated now into you know the elementary curriculum kids learn these songs when they're little and they they keep them throughout their lives yes i hope that our society never loses these songs I hope we always listen to these songs and keep singing them to our children and uh, they hang on there. Um, I did find it interesting that the the researchers found that even though the baby boomer age is kind of the the age that is in the gerontological population or is entering the gerontological population um, now, that, that we don't, we as a profession, don't use the songs from the 50s and 60s that would have been in their high school and 20s years as much mm-hmm. and uh they they you know propose that perhaps the population that of the music therapists that responded to this survey was maybe older than that which might be true um or that they listened to the songs of their parents and so the older songs might be used a little bit more because of that um but I found that part interesting, too. Yeah, and I think, too, that some of these songs, I mean, I, I mean they reported, you know, how what percentage of, of music therapists knew these songs as well. Um, but I also think that, you know, a, a lot of people are just more familiar with those older songs. They know them better. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why we do them. I I have, you know, my parents are baby boomers. And they are, you know, they're not really involved in any kind of programming with music that where there's a music therapist present. So, you know, my, and I know a lot of people who are baby boomers who are just in rock bands. You know, they're still doing rock band stuff. So it also might be that we're just not working with baby boomers nearly as much as we are the older adults. When I think about the adults that we work with, like in practicum settings out in the community, our 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 older adults tend to be significantly older adults. So, you know, we just don't we don't use this music as much. The you know, for the stuff from the fifties and the sixties. 
I find that to be true in, in our area as well. Um, we have about five minutes left of the live show. So if you're listening live, it's going to cut off in five minutes and you can hear the rest of it in the archives. Um, so the next article is a research article summary. And it's a summary of an article called Absorption and Music, Development of a Scale to Identify Individuals with Strong Emotional Responses to Music. And it was published in the Psychology of Music Journal. So I thought this was a nice addition to our, well, maybe it's not an addition, but these haven't been in the last few perspectives that we've read. And so I thought it was a nice addition to this one to see a summary of research that's being published in other journal articles that we may not access. Yeah. And I I found it really interesting that talking about the development of this absorption in music scale and then thinking about how you could use it, the implications of findings I thought was really interesting, um, and how that could be applied then in music therapy sessions. So I, the whole thing to me was very interesting, but... You know, it says in regards to music therapy, the skill could be used with interventions aimed at reducing stress, um, pain management, and then. But we also need to think about it says uh, further in, in interventions for procedural support aimed at lessening traumatic experiences, decreasing anxiety, and decreasing pain could really benefit. And I think that's true. I'm I'm excited to go now and learn more about this um, absorption in music scale. I want to go back and read the actual article so I can get a deeper sense of, you know, the scale itself and the research that they're doing. So could potentially yeah. be a very useful clinical tool. I thought, so too. I thought that was really cool. Um, the next article is an investigation into the efficacy of a music-based men's group for improving psychological well-being. And uh, I thought this was interesting, an interesting premise. And it was they had a good description of the group so that if I were working in a situation like this, I might be able to apply some of the concepts to my clinical practice. Absolutely. And, you know, shout out to our Aussie colleagues. I thought this was a great article. And I was really fascinated by the programming. And they... They make the comment actually early on. It says, Australian sporting clubs are often the social hub of the community. Um, aging changes in physical ability, financial resources, and access to transport can prevent men from joining sports clubs. Same thing happens in the U.S. Socializing in pubs has traditionally been a place for Australian men to interact, but you know that might not be a positive place for people to be because of health issues or finances or past addictive behaviors. And it's interesting because I live in, you know, I live in North Dakota, which is a very rural state. We only have 700,000 people in the entire state. Um, and I see that too, especially in the smaller communities where we have, you know, a lot of the gentlemen in our town will used to go to the cafe or, um, you know, that we have some folks who have breakfast together every morning. But then, you know, as they get older or their health declines, you know, they can't they can't go to the shooting clubs they used to go to. They can't play golf like they used to. Um, so, you know, a lot of them go to the cafe to meet their friends or they go to the bar to meet their friends. But then again, for some people, that's just that's not a good health choice to go and do that. So I was fascinated by this idea of the men's sheds just in general. And then reading about their programming was even cooler. So, what a good idea! That, I mean, a good way to to think of it, because in in general, a lot of 
I mean, I guess it's kind of a stereotype, but a lot of men that I know would not go just to a traditional counseling session, but they might participate in some music making and therefore connect with other people and then start sharing their feelings and uh, processing. Yeah, so and they, you know, they even said that there were, it was like 40%, 45 so, uh, oh, 41.9% of the sample said that they were not would not be likely to go to traditional psychological therapy. So you're clearly reaching a, a significant portion of people who are benefiting from these interventions that otherwise would not have that kind of support. So good on you. Right. Um, so the yeah, next article. And I thought the, oh, go yeah, ahead. That was a good article. Oh, no, I was just going to yeah, say, I, I just thought it was – and I, I was interested to see that the improvements in the scores were really tied to the length of time that people were together. And I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's, it is reflective of other research that shows that, that indicates that, you know, when people are together for a longer period of time in, in sort of a therapeutic setting, that they do become more comfortable and more willing to share and then, you know, more able to make progress. So, Great. All right, All right. So I've had to ready to move on? My... Yeah, yeah. Can you read the next <laughs> title? I'm trying to put my baby down I now. I <laughs> sure can. Uh, the next one is Levels of Evidence in the Journal of Music Therapy from 2000 to 2009, Descriptive Analyses by Year and Clinical Population, and this one is by Andrea Springer and Michael Silverman. And... Um, Shout out to Andrea. She has she has a podcast as well that is super fun to listen to. I I subscribe to it and listen to it on uh, my significant drive to and from work. <laughs> um, yeah. So what they did, what um, Andrea and Dr. Silverman did, was oh, and kudos to Dr. Silverman on his research award at the AMTA conference. Um, oh, yeah. What they did was they looked at JMT articles from 2000 to 2009, and then they classified them according to the Melnick and Finout Overholt levels of evidence um, classification system. So there are seven different levels of evidence in this classification system, and what they did was they went through the, all the articles and they decided where they fit in this classification system. And what I thought was really interesting to me was looking at the results, the levels of evidence that are represented in the JMT articles. And keep in mind that this is from 2000 to 2009, and, and the so it's a little bit older. You know, the last article was published five years ago. Um, that the majority, so almost, actually almost a statistical majority, uh, so 45.36% of articles fell into this level six, which is evidence from a single descriptive or qualitative study. And so remember I said in that spiritual care one that a lot of our research, just period, in music therapy over the years has been a lot of case stories. Um, and just explaining, you know, here's here's a client that I had and here's what I did with that client. And we need those kind of studies, but we need to have a balance of the kind of studies. And you know, you can you can tell from that forty five point three six percent that's not a balance. <laughs> um, we need yeah, we need those qualitative studies. We need 
we need high quality qualitative studies and you can do really high quality qualitative research with with a lot of rigor but then we need to balance that with things like randomized controlled trials and um and for music therapists it's not always possible to have a randomized controlled trial so a lot of times you do a trial i'm doing a trial right now where it's just it's not possible for me to do a randomized control trial and so i have set it up in a different way i don't have a control group um so we're looking at within it's a within subjects design which means that everybody sort of acts as their own control um but yeah i, I think it's i think it's interesting to to sit back and look at okay where how do our articles sort of shake out over the years where are we in terms of the levels of evidence and I think for me, the take-home point, we were talking about this, and we mentioned it earlier when we were saying, you know, clinicians don't have access to the types of of research bases and information um, portals that academics do. And Andrea and Michael make a really good point. They say, additionally, if academic research and clinicians collaborate, it seems as though there might be a greater potential for significant research contributions that accurately represent contemporary clinical practice. And, you know, AMTA offers that clinician research um, grant where a clinician collaborates with an academic on a project. And I think that, that they have really hit the nail on the head. I think if we could collaborate more from academic institutions with clinicians, I really think that we could see some fantastic, very scientifically rigorous research you know, come out in the music therapy literature. To me, that was the big take-home point for this entire article. I agree with that um, to some point. But so I have my primary uh, job has been a private practice, solo practitioner music therapist. And the idea of getting all of the consent forms signed and trying to do this while I'm trying to make a living just seems so prohibitive, which is how I well I view a lot of music therapists working. So I um, question the how how logistically can we even make this work? I just it just seems um, not doable to me. And and I have to say that I think that's why it's so important to have that collaboration with somebody who is who is the academic who can sit down and say you know can work with can work with the clinician and go okay here's how we can make that work and um i'm in sort of the weird position because we don't have a lot of music therapists in north dakota we make a lot of music therapists we make a lot of really fantastic music therapists but we don't have a lot of board certified music therapists in north dakota so i i wind up you know doing the clinical research um and so it's um there there is a way to do it but but it's not going to be necessarily easy i mean it's not going to be easy on anybody's part but it right. is doable well and it's i like guess being that's a working why... parent not easy but doable right <laughs> i guess that's why you um you know apply for grants to help with some sorts of things and and collaborate with maybe more than one clinician so mm-hmm. yeah i guess you just need to have a different mindset. Um, all right, so then we move into the AMTA Student Research Awards article summaries. 
And again, I think it's very nice to see these summaries. Um, I often hear about the students winning the awards and then have no idea what it is they won for and what their research was on. So it's nice to see these. Um, the first one was the, a thematic guide of songs for adolescents with antepartum depression, um, which I thought was a really interesting topic. And uh, mostly it talked about lyric analysis and emotional themes. And so um, it made me, that, that's kind of what I took away from it was to think more about the lyric analysis and the emotional themes that is in con the content of songs that have been written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did my internship, part of my internship at the Iowa Juvenile Home in the State Training School for Girls. And we actually experienced this a lot. We had a lot of young women who were at that facility who came in and were pregnant and then gave birth while they were still there. And then, of course, they had the added stress of their children were automatically placed in either foster care or with a family member. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought this one was was really um, was really an interesting one, too. So I feel like I say that a lot. I feel like we just have a really interesting... We just have an interesting field. <laughs> And then we have the Graduate Research Award. And uh, the Graduate Research Award uh, article was by somebody whose last name I'm going to butcher, um, who is a doctoral candidate at Indiana University. I am going to give it a shot. Uh, do you happen to know this person, Janice? I don't. Okay, so I'm just going to, and I really apologize, fabulous person who's a doctoral candidate at Indiana University. Um po Potheny or Potheny or I could just be completely wrong. Uh Viuli. Oh god. I have one of those names that people misspell and mispronounce all the all the time, so I apologize. Fabulous doctoral candidate at Indiana. Um but this was joint engagement for toddlers at risk with autism and this was a single uh, this was a single subject, mixed methods design, and I'm a big proponent of mixed methods research. Um, so the and clearly there was some significant um, benefit to this child that was in this in the sessions. So, and I am also a big proponent of family centered therapy for young children who have autism spectrum disorders because I have one of those children. So. Um, they, the results of the study indicated that the family-driven and child-centered music therapy interventions hold the potential to scaffold children's participation in daily routines and promote their engagement. And, and actually, uh, in the speech-language pathology literature, that's also been seen um, when we do when there is uh, when there are speech and language interventions that are really based around family interactions and the child's natural environment known as enhanced milieu therapy, that that we also see lots of gains. Um, but, you know, it's one of those where we the music therapy seemed to do, especially when it was including the, the family, seemed to have lots of positive effects on the child. So, yeah. Again, I really wish that I could, I'm, I'm hoping that these projects will be, you know, published in their entirety someplace because I'd really like to read the whole thing. Yeah, I and so agree. our last, yeah. yeah, and actually, I thought of you while I was reading that one because I know that you've done some work like that. I have. 
I have, and I, so I thought that one it seemed really relevant, and I too wanted to read the whole article. I know. Um, our mm-hmm. last article is by Dr. Silverman, and it is a descriptive analysis of supervision in psychiatric music therapy. And um, I don't know. I, I guess I got a kick out of this article. Not that it was funny, but I've been teaching. Um, this is the semester when I teach psychiatric approaches to music therapy. And so I feel like that's kind of all I see in the world right now is <laughs> right. like psychiatry and psychiatric music therapy. Um, I like. I thought this you, one. This was a great example of an article that's really easy to read. His writing style is very understandable, and I didn't find any difficulty with jargon in his writing. Um, I didn't find anything particularly relevant, except that it, I like seeing um, articles that, about supervision addressed because it makes me think about my own supervision that I receive and the supervision that I provide. And so I like getting just, I like staying focused on that and making sure that I am I am attending to all of the really important needs that ha- are met in supervision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that not only did he talk about the, the participants themselves receiving supervision, but then also providing supervision. Um, I was interested to see that they said approximately half of the respondents indicated they were required to have formal supervision with their supervisor, um, while a higher percentage indicated that they learned about supervision during their music therapy academic training. And um, I've never worked somewhere where I was required to have supervision. You know, once I got done with my internship, any supervision that I had was really my own call. You know, I, I had to go out and seek it and engage in it myself. So there, I didn't, I've never worked anywhere where that was provided for me. So... I'm glad to see there are places that people are. So, if it, yes. but, you know, the one question that didn't get asked though was, is it is this a good thing? Because <laughs> I think sometimes when music therapists aren't, you know, when you don't when you engage with supervision with somebody who's outside of the discipline, you can learn things from a different perspective, and those people can be really great to work with, and they can offer you a different perspective on your interactions with you know, with your clients and how you're doing professionally. But I also think, too, that there are some things that you really just have to talk to another music therapist about. Right, right. All right. Unfortunately, we don't really have time to get into the book reviews. No. Because um, we're going to get cut off. But the book reviews are always very interesting, so go read those. Yeah. Um, I'm especially interested in buying the International Dictionary. Yeah. That one was really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, and uh, I apologize for all of the distractions today, but that's what happens when you try to do this show as a real person instead of a uh, paid person, I guess. I don't know. I guess paid people are real, too. But uh, this is just how my life goes, and when my kid doesn't nap, I still try to do things anyway. Um, So thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Masco, for being on the show again, and uh, we'll be back in February probably, or early March maybe, to uh, talk about the next publication that we received, which is the Journal of Music Therapy. Um, on January 31st, next Friday, I'm sorry, that's a, a Saturday, January 30th, I'm going to have a guest, 
Amy Zuniga is going to be on my show. She leads the mommy group that I go to. And so we're going to talk about issues that are very real for me right now, which is a, a issues for new moms. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go and see if I can ever get a child that will nap. Thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or concerns or feedback that you'd like to give me, contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net. Have a great day, everyone, and we will talk again next week.